and thanks for tuning in to the Breast Cancer Action Podcast. Breast Cancer Action is not your average breast cancer organization, and this is not your average podcast. We're people-powered and we're fiercely independent, radical and compassionate. We never shy away from the hard truths. We bring you the facts and we tell it like it is about breast cancer and what you can do about it. Welcome to the Breast Cancer Action Podcast. I'm Karuna Jagger, and I'm your host. Once again, I'm hiding out from my family and my dog in a quiet corner of the house to record this podcast. But a little over a year ago, I was on the Northern California coast with my youngest daughter for her spring break. We were watching the waves, combing the rocky beaches, and reading books. So many books. Lots and lots of books. But unlike my then sixth grader, I'm really not into fantasy or sci-fi, and I do not like dystopia. What I was enthralled with is a book that I'd long had on my reading list and was finally getting around to reading, The Danger Within Us, America's Untested, Unregulated Medical Device Industry and One Man's Battle to Survive It. I was captivated. I thought I knew about our broken FDA regulatory system and the corrupting influence of money on our healthcare system. But I learned a lot reading Jeannie Lenzer's book about the intersection of money and medicine and how profiteering distorts medical science and undermines our public health. Then I was excited to realize that I had actually spoken with Jeannie Lenzer about a week before going on spring break for a piece that she was writing for the BMJ on mammography screening. She writes about a whole range of important themes in healthcare, especially for breast cancer. And it's vital that we all understand the system into which tests and treatments for COVID-19 are being promoted right now. And so I am really pleased to have Jeannie Lenzer join me today. Jeannie is the associate editor of the BMJ and an award-winning independent medical investigative journalist and author whose hard-hitting investigations and analysis have appeared in medical journals and other outlets such as the New York Times, the Washington Post, Smithsonian Magazine, The Atlantic, Mother Jones, Discover, and a whole lot more. It is really an honor to have you join the conversation today, Jeannie. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Corona. So I want to begin by talking about who you are and how you began this work as an investigative medical journalist. We all have interesting stories of how we came to this. Few people, you know, thought this was going to be their career. I know that you are a former uh, physician's assistant. What I want to know is the path that took you from emergency rooms to investigative medical reporting. Sure. Well, one of the early things I ran into was as a PA in the ER, um, I was responsible in the small ER for whatever came through the door, whether it was an ankle sprain or a heart attack or um, other kinds of medical problems that bring people to ERs. And um, we had a protocol nationally that all doctors and PAs would prescribe a certain drug for patients if they had chest pain. And we prescribed that drug to get rid of abnormal heartbeats because there were certain types of heartbeats known as PVCs that could trigger a deadly rhythm in patients if they were going to have a heart attack. Um, They were much more likely to die of these PVCs. So we gave them lidocaine to prevent those uh, abnormal beats from causing a problem. 
And this was done all over the country by virtually everyone in every ER. And patients as outpatients also got a similar uh, type of drug, a class of drugs that they'd get orally. We gave this medicine IV in the ER, but um, they'd take these drugs orally to suppress these abnormal heartbeats. And it was really wonderful because, you know, I, I you could see patients with these abnormal beats. They'd have just a few of them. And... Um, you give the medicine and they'd go away and you didn't have to worry that they were going to die of this uh, terrible abnormal rhythm we knew they could trigger. The only problem was it took many years before somebody actually finally did a study and it was a famous study called the CAST trial where they looked at patients who were given these drugs versus patients who were given placebo. And it turns out that patients who were given these drugs they were very effective at getting rid of the abnormal heartbeats all right, but they were 3.6 times more likely to die. So it's a classic case of, you know, the operation's a success, but the patient dies. Mm -hmm. you know, and this is a real problem in medicine, and it's something that the regulatory authorities, unfortunately, um, have actually been promoting rather than uh, you know, saying this is a problem, these surrogate markers. It's what we call a surrogate marker. When you look at something that isn't actually a clinical outcome, a clinical outcome is do you live longer? Do you feel better? Are you free of a disease that, you know, is being treated? Instead, they're encouraging the use of these surrogate markers. So, for example, abnormal heartbeats are a surrogate marker. They're not telling you if your treatment makes a patient live any longer. It's only telling you that you're getting rid of those abnormal beats. And too often, yeah, it's like giving bleach to someone with, with COVID. <laughs> it'll get rid of the COVID, but it'll get rid of you too. And unfortunately, that goes on a lot in medicine. Yeah. Well, so let's start by just talking about the role of the Food and Drug Administration and the FDA's approval process. I think a lot of folks have this general understanding that the FDA works to protect public health, you know, by ensuring the safety and efficacy of drugs and biologics and medical devices. Um, they also are charged with safety of our food supply, cosmetics, and even products that emit radiation. This is an agency whose mission is to regulate things that go into our body, the foods, medicines, medical devices. Um, and so how do they ensure that they're safe and effective? Uh, what is the FDA's process for approvals? Well, first of all, I think it's important for people to understand that the FDA doesn't do any testing. A lot of people are under the misapprehension uh, that, that, that the FDA actually does testing. They don't. They ask the manufacturer to test their own drugs and to give a report card on themselves. And this in itself is a serious problem. So we already know from plenty of literature and studies that have been repeated over and over that when you rely on somebody who has a profit to make from a, a drug or device, that they are going to promote the positive outcomes as best they can, and they're going to deep six any negative outcomes. And you would think that maybe this wouldn't be possible that the FDA would catch these things, but really they don't. And it's pretty simple to show how it happens just by simply looking at the number of drugs and devices that have to be withdrawn every year because they're found to be ineffective or unsafe. So with drugs, the FDA used to require two randomized controlled trials um, before 
approving a new drug. And with the AIDS era, AIDS activists really pushed to have those guidelines reduced, to have the bar of evidence reduced. We were actually talking with Greg Gonzalez at the last podcast. Yeah, and he's one among others who, you know, says we were young and naive and and regrets that kind of, um, you know, yes, they wanted to speed up the process, um, but they also lowered the bar of evidence. And there's been a continuous drip, drip, drip of reducing the bar of evidence and what he called a slow degradation of of evidence. And so things like, I mean, I remember when I was at MIT um, doing the night science journalism uh, program uh, uh, fellowship there, uh, the head of FDA's um, medical policy, um, I'm forgetting his name right now, but he came and spoke. And, and this was 12 years ago, and they were really pushing, we need surrogate markers. We need to be able to do our studies faster. And that's why they want to use surrogate markers. They're faster, they're cheaper, and they don't tell you the truth. And again, a surrogate marker would be something like you you could think that they're obvious, like, um, but they can be very misleading. So for example, say you want to reduce seizures in someone, you have a new seizure medicine or a new seizure device. You would say, well, we're reducing seizures. Isn't that a, a clinical outcome you want to know about? Well, yes and no. Once again, you can kill the seizure and kill the patient. So we really need to know major outcomes as well as the symptom itself. And in fact, with the thing that I talked about in my book, in particular, the patient I followed, because he was such a good example of all the ways that device regulation goes wrong, um, he had a vagus nerve stimulator, a device that was said to reduce seizures. Um, But the problem is there were tremendous numbers of deaths with this device, because what does the vagus nerve do? It slows the heart rate, and it can slow it so much that it stops it, which is what it did to this patient and nearly killed him. And in many other patients, it appears that they probably died sudden death from their heart stopping. And there are cardiologists who, you know, testified that, you know, this patient looks like they had heart stoppage, like my my fellow did that I wrote about. So this use of surrogate markers is a major problem, and it continues to be used, and actually is a very... A tragic and if not downright funny, but tragic story coming from COVID right now. The, the way that Trump and everybody else got all hyped up about hydroxychloroquine for COVID was from this French researcher. That was the first study that triggered all this interest. His name is Didier Raoul. And he looked at uh, 36 patients. I can't remember the exact numbers. I think it was something like well, I'm going to make it up, but it's something like 12-ish of those patients um, didn't get the drug and the rest did get, I think it's like, yeah, 26 got the drug. I can't remember exact numbers, but roughly a 2-1 split ballpark. Something like that. Yes, exactly. Uh, The interesting thing is uh, that uh, study was reported as positive and it triggered worldwide interest and people started taking hydroxychloroquine and pharmacies around the country were running out of it. Doctors were hoarding it. Well, what did that study show? It showed that there were six patients who were not included in his analysis, six patients who got hydroxychloroquine. Now, why did he exclude them from his analysis? Because the requirement was that they made it to day six. Well, 
It's interesting why six people couldn't make it to day six. One of them was dead. Three of them were transferred to an ICU unit out of his unit, and two withdrew from the study. So he ignores those six patients. And of the control group who didn't get the drug, no patient died, no patient was transferred to ICU, and no patient withdrew. So all of the bad outcomes were in the hydroxychloroquine arm. So how did he manage to claim victory? Well, through a surrogate marker. What he did was he reported how many patients had coronavirus in their nose. And it turns out that more patients had coronavirus in their nose in the control group than in the treatment group. So once again, you killed the virus, but it looks like you killed and harmed the patients as well. Yeah. Well, this is so important. You know, folks are clamoring for a quick release of new tests and treatments so we can get back to normal living, whatever that looks like. And and we've seen the problems with surrogate endpoints in breast cancer. Um, so sometimes it's progression-free survival. And, you know, there's many cases of cancer drugs that appear to slow tumor growth at the beginning, but then the cancer comes back more aggressively than ever. And we, you know, Or the patient dies of liver failure or whatever else. Yeah. Exactly. Which was, you know, then there was Avastin, um, which, you know, many felt uh, helped some patients, but it Certainly, the data showed that uh, people were as likely to die from the effects of Avastin as they were from, you know, as, as would have benefited from it. Um, so it was incredibly cardiotoxic. Um, and luckily, the FDA did reverse that conditional approval. But what I want to talk about is, so here we are in this moment where there's, you know, a call for speed. And we know that surrogate endpoints are the fastest way to um, get there, to get a drug to market. So when this happens, the FDA offers a conditional approval. And I expect that we're going to see this. So talk to us about the lessons from the past. Um, you know, what have we learned about conditional approvals to date? They don't get done. Yeah. You know, the, the, the post-market studies that they're required to do, um, there are some studies looking at how many are not completed. And um, I think there was something like 25% weren't completed at five years, another 25-ish percent were not even started. So you land up with nearly half of them just not even being done. And and other ones where the, the drug just drops out, so it's no longer relevant. But it's a serious problem. And, and leaving it to the drug companies to do it just doesn't work. You know, they they simply don't report certain things or they know how to disaggregate symptoms. I mean, I remember attending an FDA hearing once on um, antidepressants and what they did because there's this syndrome of activation where patients take the drug and it doesn't happen to all patients. I mean, some patients seem to benefit from the drugs, but there are other patients who um, can develop a serious problem that can go from activation to akathisia. And it's it's a symphony of, of symptoms. So they can become agitated, nervous, heart rate speeding. Um, and, and what they did is instead of putting those all under the heading of activation, which, you know, would have been statistically significant and said, this is a problem. People are committing more suicide, more homicide. They're, you know, uh, getting this syndrome. Um, what they did is they simply disaggregated all the symptoms so that if you 
teased out agitation into nervousness plus agitation plus slightly worried plus, you know, you just use all these different words. None of them individually would rise to the level of statistical significance. Drug companies are very smart. They're way ahead of everybody like me and others who try to track their tricks. Um, and, and they know how to do this stuff. It's, it's, and this is the real problem is leaving all of this research in the hands of industry. I mean, that's where the problem starts and that, that there is complete regulatory capture at the level of FDA. So you, you mentioned regulatory capture, and I think there may be listeners that, you know, this is new to them. So explain to us what regulatory capture is. Well, this one, you know, you should be having a police person, you know, saying that this isn't right or that isn't right. But, you know, if a police officer is married to the criminal, you're not going to get much result, are you? And and this is a real problem is that this agency has been captured by industry. And the way it works is not only the money that goes in because of the funding that's that Congress has required Congress, this wasn't always this way. It used to be a public institution funded by public money. But I can't remember what year the uh, Congress said, okay, industry, you're going to start paying for this. And on one level, that sounds reasonable. We'll make industry pay for the work that that, uh, this regulatory agency is doing. But the problem is that does lead to regulatory capture because these people know who they have to please or the you know, money may not be there, but most of all, their own individual jobs may not be there. And that's the revolving door that we see where people from FDA go to industry and people from industry go to FDA. And what happens is industry will actually hold a job for somebody, pay them their salary and send them to the FDA to pass legislation that favors corporate interests. And that's what we saw with 21st Century Cures Act, where they lowered the bar of evidence even lower. I mean, <laughs> I was talking to um, uh, Diana Zuckerman from the National Center for Health Statistics. And when I, when I talked to her about the 21st Century Cures Act, you know, and I said, oh, my God, this is going to lower the bar even further for devices. And she said, I don't know how they could drop it any further. It's already in the dirt. Uh, you know, and it's true, yeah. you know, a little brief description of device approval is that almost all devices get on the market without ever going through any clinical testing. Even the most dangerous, high-risk implanted devices, such as cardiac defibrillators, pacemakers, deep brain stimulators, hip implants, hip replacements, knee replacements, these all get on the market typically without even any clinical testing. And what happens is that all that a company has to do is say, well, there's a device on the market that's sort of like the device we have, and they call it a predicate device. They say, you know, our device is substantially equivalent to this device that's already on the market. Well, how did that device get on the market? Easy. Back in 1970, was it 76 or 73? In early 1970s, mid-1970s, the device industry came under the control of FDA. Prior to that, only drugs were under the purview of FDA. But in the early 70s, these devices that were already on the market, things like cataract lens implants and, and um, synthetic joints, uh, pacemakers, these were all on the market. So what they did is they just grandfathered all of those in and 
basically said, well, they've been on the market, so they're okay. And from here on in, if you can cite a device that your device is like, you can get that on the market too. And even the highest risk devices, when a company makes changes to the device, all they have to do is file what they call a supplement. And let me tell you how bad a supplement can be. So, for example, the um, Depew uh, uh, defibrillator, they made a new wire for it to be more flexible. This is the wire that goes from the generator into the heart itself. And that seemed like a good idea, make it a little more flexible. That's no big deal. We're not going to clinically test it. We'll just tell the FDA, you know, we'll get a supplement and it'll get on. And that's exactly what happened. The FDA awarded the supplement and uh, Depew puts this on the market. And the problem was the more flexible wire actually fractured a fair bit. And I, I can't remember, it was several hundred thousand patients that had already been implanted with this. So patients were either being shocked unnecessarily or it just wasn't firing when it was supposed to fire. And the shock can be terrible. John Mandrola, an electrophysiologist and cardiologist, said, you know, people can maybe can tolerate the first 250 volt, but after that, fear rises to sheer terror. And patients have been left with PTSD after being unnecessarily and repeatedly shocked by these devices that fractured. And then they're left, you know, under the sort of Damocles because it turns out that these wires become ensnared in scar tissue and removing them led to serious problems in 15 to 18% of patients, serious adverse events, bleeding and death when they tried to remove the wires. So they're left with, do I leave it in and risk that my wire is going to fracture or do I have it taken out and risk that I might die in that process? Well, what people don't realize about devices too is a lot of times they're promoted with the idea, oh, well, they're better than drugs. And I must say, I was seduced by that idea too. I thought, oh, gee, you know, drugs have so many side effects. Isn't it better just to have a device? But what we don't realize is you can stop a drug you can't necessarily stop a device. And a lot of times you can't take them out or it becomes very dangerous to take them out. That was one of the things that really struck me about your book that, you know, when these devices, whether it's the mesh or the wires, they're in there and the body grows around it and the scar oh, tissue. Yes. And, and that was, you know, a big learning for me as well. We see that with breast implants, you know, when they rupture and the silicone leaks and, you know, you can't sop yes. it up, you can't find it, it migrates. Um, and, and, you know, it certainly did change my thinking about this as well. When we think about health justice and the need to ensure that everyone is getting the health care that they need, we mostly focus on gaps in access, gaps in care. And one of the things that transformed my thinking about health inequities was to think that sometimes healthcare looks like not enough care. Sometimes it looks like too much care. And yeah. sometimes it's yeah. the wrong care, right? That health inequity can manifest in different ways. But we so often assume that with grave and potentially fatal medical problems, something is better than nothing. Uh, and, and I think we see this with breast cancer. Uh, everyone talks about people dying from cancer, but rarely does anybody talk about them dying from treatment. Yes. But that happens. Some treatments do hasten death. And this is not an issue of malpractice. This is a result 
uh, it's statistics, you know, there's risks with every procedure, every medicine, every device. And you've used the phrase, the cure is the cause. And I would love for you to explain that concept to listeners. Sure. I can give an example I wrote about in Smithsonian. And it's one that, that would have fooled me, certainly fooled many, many, many people around the world. So there was this outbreak in Japan eventually spread around the globe um, in the 1950s. And it would start with diarrhea, and then people would develop a curious numbness in their toes, and then it would spread upward in their legs. And eventually a number of them became paralyzed and then blind. I can't remember the percentage that died. I mean, I think it might have been something like 13 to 20% of the people died. It was called SMON, S-M-O-N, subacute myeloptic uh, neuropathy. So this is something that affected the brain and the vision and the nerves. And it all started typically with diarrhea or a gastroenteritis, what looked like a gastroenteritis. And people who came down with it, there, there were clusters. Their family would come down with it. If they'd go to the hospital, the doctors and nurses around, who treated them would come down with it. And doctors around the world, uh, they had a consortium that they put together frantically trying to figure out what was causing this terrible outbreak. And um, they first researcher reported, um, I think, echovirus. They detected echovirus in a number of these patients, but then other researchers weren't able to duplicate that. And there had been a lot of excitement because, you know, that could have been responsible for a, a gastroenteritis type of presentation. And then someone else said, well, no, they had recovered herpes virus from a number of people. And that looked particularly promising because herpes is known to infect the nerves and somehow maybe a special strain of herpes had infected these people. But then that wasn't, they couldn't replicate that. And then they wondered, well, was it a pesticide poisoning? But then they looked at farmers and farmers had a lower incidence than other people. And at one point, somebody thought, well, maybe it's this drug that people are getting that the number of these patients got, um, an antibiotic. And they said, well, no, because a number of the patients didn't get the antibiotic until after they developed the symptoms. And then finally, it was a couple of years later um, when somebody realized that two of the drugs that have been named as potential causes actually were the same drug and were known to cause neurologic problems. In fact, so well known that the company SIBA had warned veterinarians not to give it to dogs because it could cause neurologic damage and death. And their reaction to learning that it had this effect was to simply say, don't give it to dogs, not don't give it to humans as well. And it turns out that's exactly what it was. They stopped the drug and the whole epidemic stopped. So why did it occur in clusters and why did it occur to doctors and nurses who treated the patients? It turns out that, you know, again, that wonderful phrase, don't just do something, stand there, comes in handy because what would happen is people were so afraid that they would get this disease, that they would take these antibiotics, quote, preemptively to try to prevent it because that's the drug they were using to treat people with diarrhea and gastroenteritis. So, and that included doctors. This is a serious problem across all disciplines in medicine because what happens is whenever a patient has a symptom, doctors, you know, a lot of times the symptom is from their underlying disease, but 
a lot of times it can be from the drug. And there have been a couple studies looking at this. Um, so, for example, patients taking uh, statin drugs, even when they told their doctors that they were having symptoms that were well described as caused by statins, like muscle pain, the doctor said, oh, no, 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 it's not that's not your drug. Just keep taking it. So we have the problem of side effects of drugs are typically blamed on the patient's underlying condition. But cures, when a patient gets better, it's always ascribed to the treatment when a lot of times the patient was just going to get better anyway. And that's, again, what we're seeing with hydroxychloroquine. A lot of the studies were done without a control group. Those patients were going to get better anyway. So we need we need control groups. We need placebos. We need sham uh, surgeries to test surgeries that are done. Um, there are a number that are falling by the wayside now. Um, and we all have to, you know, try to keep ourselves in check because like I say, I would have certainly fallen for the Smon thing. It looked like an infectious outbreak. Well, the same thing with coronary arteries. You know, the idea is, I mean, there's something called the oculostenotic reflex. Doctor looks, oculo, at the stenosis, the blockage, Oh, the reflex is you got to open it up and you see the blood flow through the newly opened artery. And it's so impressive that you think, oh, my God, you know, I've really saved the person. And yet it took decades before somebody finally did the sham trials to show that many stent procedures are completely unnecessary and aren't helping the patient. I have so many questions, but this feels like just the moment to talk for a minute about mammography screening, breast cancer screening. Mm. Um, you know, every time somebody is alive after breast cancer treatment and there was a mammogram involved, it feels like they say, my mammogram saved my life, which is what they've been told, you know, through all these very aggressive, you know, early detection save lives campaigns. Few people, if anyone, say their mammogram costs them unnecessary treatment, their mammogram costs them their breast. I know you've done a lot of work on cancer screenings. Talk to us a little bit about what you've learned. Well, I'll tell you this. I've never had a mammogram and I'm 69 years old. So the the reason I've never had one is because I was aware of work by Peter Gacci and others, uh, Michael Baum. Have you had either of them on your podcast? No, but I'll have to reach out. You should. Oh, they are fabulous. And, and it's their studies that convinced me that um, there was no benefit to mammography, routine mammography screening. That isn't to say that there isn't a place for breast cancer treatment. But there's a huge difference between subjecting healthy people to tests that in turn can cause serious problems. And I was shocked to find that even a needle aspiration to follow up on a biopsy has resulted in lung collapse and death in this particularly slender woman with small breasts. You know, I mean, these things happen. They don't happen often um, in terms of a needle biopsy, but certainly other things cause deaths. And if we're going to start calling DCIS and all these other things that Europeans tend not to treat as aggressively or at all, um, and you're going to call that cancer, you're now going to subject a whole lot of women to unnecessary treatment or treatments that are harsh. And even if it might save one or two women, it's going to hurt and potentially kill a number of other women. So the study that Peter Gacci did uh, looked at uh, 600,000 women, um, half of whom got breast cancer screening, half of whom didn't. And uh, there was no difference in overall mortality. And, and that was an article I wrote with um, 
Vinay Prasad uh, in in the Mm -hmm. BMJ when we said why cancer screening has never been shown to save lives. That isn't to say that there's no screening that's useful. Um, It may be that that pap smears are a screening that that is useful. However, um, in terms of studies being done, um, we've never shown that that breast cancer screening saves lives. And that was our our objection was the the phrase saves lives. Because typically what women are told is we can save lives 30% reduction in breast cancer deaths. Well, they're only talking about disease-specific mortality. And they're not talking, and that disease-specific mortality only looks at benefits. It completely ignores harms. And what we found was that about as many women will be killed in the process of surgery, radiation, chemotherapy, as lives will be saved, or they will have heart attacks or commit suicide. At least that's what happened with men and prostate cancer screening, the same thing. Their heart attack rate went up, their suicide rate went up, and there was no reduction in overall mortality. There wasn't even a reduction in prostate cancer mortality in one of the two major studies. One of the other ones found a reduction, and that's very similar to the breast cancer studies where, you know, it's not even totally clear how much breast cancer death reduction there is. And that varies. But certainly when we look at overall mortality with 600,000 women, you know, it's possible that because of the size of the study that there was a very tiny benefit, but equally that means it's possible there was a very tiny net harm. And I just didn't want to take my chances that way. So I've gotten through to 69. Now, if I had a lump or had a problem, I would get it treated. And there are treatments that can be given that can, you know, reduce discomfort and prolong life. But once you have something. It's a really good point, distinguishing screening asymptomatic people from checking out a symptom, you know, from getting a symptom looked at, diagnosed, and then um, choosing treatment. Yes, a diagnostic mammogram is very different from a screening mammogram, and the effects are very different. Yeah. So there's a lot to say about that, um, and no doubt we'll be doing more on subsequent podcasts about screening. We know that's a big rabbit hole. Um, But I want to go back to some of your work um, around conflict of interest. And, And before we turn to that, you know, you tell a grim story, to be honest. I mean, I am no conspiracy theorist, but, you know, it's sobering what you have found and and somewhat, you know, um, confounding because we know that there are really good people um, who are stuck in a really broken system. And, you know, most of us have you know, many of us have good experiences with health providers. And we think about, you know, medical students promise to first do no harm as, you know, kind of a fundamental pillar of medicine and the Hippocratic Oath. So what's going on? How come doctors are prescribing these treatments and using tests and deploying devices that can harm so many people? Well, I think your first point is right. You know, I wanted to think of myself as a caring provider. And and like many people, I was stuck in a system that, that we all were frustrated. Many of us were very frustrated with. And, you know, when people ask me, well, you know, do, do doctors do these things because they're mercenaries and they just, you know, want to ignore the evidence and do the wrong thing? And I always use the example of male doctors who undergo prostate cancer screening testing. Um, you know, the studies did not show benefit and showed 
tremendous amount of harm. And Otis Brawley, the former head of, uh, he was the chief medical and scientific officer at the American Cancer Society, um, was one of the early ones warning against prostate cancer screening. But the studies show that male physicians choose to undergo it. So it's not that they're, they, they don't believe in the science. They they are true believers, and it's hard to convince people that um, you know what we do as a profession isn't often as good as we'd like to think it is. We often the, there are also some studies looking at when doctors are faced with a problem, the tendency is to want to do something, and, and that's why some doctors are taking up the phrase "Don't just do something; stand there." Yeah. There are times when watching and waiting is really what's best. Um, and I'll never forget Jerry Hoffman, a doctor I wrote about in my book a fair bit, is an emergency physician, and you know he'd say, "Look, even in the emergency room." You know, a lot of times your job is to just stand there. You know, a patient comes in with a stroke and high blood pressure. You don't want to necessarily drop it down to normal dramatically quickly. The body has homeostasis and it turns out that patients were actually harmed by normalization of the blood pressure too quickly. Same thing with Patients and stab wounds and bleeding, you know, pouring blood into them wasn't always the best thing. Sometimes you had to wait and be slow. The body's amazing and heals itself. It's not to say you don't do anything, but you watch extremely carefully and you intervene at the right moment. So, but why are they buying into so many things that we know are not good? Well, Jigna Shaw, a, a cardiologist uh, who wrote a book uh, for the lay public, um, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the title of his book, but it's something like your heart when you need a test mm -hmm. and when you don't. And he talks about how uh, cardiac stress tests used to be done intermittently and with benefit. And then they started being done all the time. And then they started adding radioactive dye to it and taking imaging studies. And now almost all of them are done that way. And they found that overwhelming numbers of those tests never should have been done. Not only shouldn't they have been done, but they lead to very bad outcomes. So particularly in women where two-thirds of so-called positive tests where they think there's a problem turn out to not be a problem. They're, they're false positives. They're, the, the study was wrong. But in order to figure out they're wrong, they send these women to and men to cardiac catheterization. And a nut, one in 300 of those die because they shear the coronary artery. There's some other complication. And, you know, so he said, well, why does this happen? And it turns out that in this instance, yes, money does have something to do with it. Doctors are paid a lot more for doing procedures, a whole lot more. And even though the Choosing Wisely campaign was telling doctors, look, we're overdoing this. We need to back off. Nobody could get doctors to back off of doing it, particularly cardiologists. And hence the wonderful saying from, was it Upton Sinclair? It's hard to convince a man of that which is income depends. I'm something to that effect. You know, it, it unconsciously, you know, we, we believe in what we do. And so you do it. And what happened was it, the problem of excess um, heart stress tests was not reversed until they changed the reimbursement. And once they stopped reimbursing so handsomely for it, doctors stopped doing it so much. And that's been shown over and over. It's been shown with imaging studies. 
that when doctors own their own imaging um, machines, MRI machines and CT scans, they suddenly do a third more. Suddenly their patients are much sicker and need a third more. <laughs> and of course, everyone says that they're, you know, above that, you know, that they personally couldn't be influenced or corrupted yeah. by the yeah. money. You know, it doesn't... Uh, influence their own decisions. But but we know that it does. The data shows. Right. And there's a wonderful study on that where they ask them, do you know people who are influenced by money? Oh, yeah. They, it's always the other guy. Yes, I know people who are influenced by money, but I'm not. Well, you know, I think we just need to. And that was part of the focus of my book is that we need to have a system in medicine that says, is this something that is a commodity or should it be a common good? Yeah. And and I truly believe that the only way we're going to get good health care is if we treat this as a common good. And, you know, many, many innovations, many of the most important discoveries were not made by people who got money for it or who got patents for it. So I think um, we're going to continue to see this kind of problem unless we change our payment model. I could not agree more. Um, you talk about the medical industrial complex, and I think that's a really nice descriptor of just this profit-driven capitalist driver to continue escalating and doing and escalating and doing. Let me just turn for a minute back to those physicians who think that they're doing something to help. And I, well, I don't know if this is useful intervention or not, but tell me what you think of this. I think if we turn back to those providers that are, um, you know, reluctant to scale back, absolutely, I think there's no question that, you know, reimbursements play a role. I also think that it's important to separate, you know, observing in a clinic from large data sets. And I think, you know, going back to women who are getting mammograms, you can't see overdiagnosis and overtreatment in an individual case. Right. And so every healthcare provider who treats a person and that person does well, the healthcare provider goes home and pats themselves on the back and says, I did that. I helped that person. Um, but overdiagnosis and overtreatment is invisible until you look at larger data sets. And I think, you know, as a country, we've overinvested in healthcare and not enough in public health, um, which I think does go in a lot of ways back to your point about, you know, viewing healthcare and public health as a common good. Um, because, you know, where's the commodity to be sold in public health? Um, often that's not where the money is made. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. And that's really playing out with coronavirus. Yeah. So tell us about that. Well, you know, <laughs> we're faced with something now that people have been warning about for a long time. I mean, I never thought that we would have the kind of outbreak that happened in 1918. And we're not. We're not having that. And a lot of the reason we won't is because we do have much better sewage systems, public health. Um, we have antibiotics now, which they didn't have in 1918. And there was a war. So who died of flu in 1918? Soldiers in barracks were the number one people who, who just died like flies. I mean, they were stressed, they were hungry, they were crowded. And those are the things, those are the factors we know make a huge difference. And I think, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see what happens when the final numbers come in years from now. But I think one of the reasons the United States is doing so badly, besides having a terrible administration that isn't doing the right thing, but I think a, a big part of that is our incredible wealth gap. 
I mean, we know that, and some of the statistics are already coming in about people who are poor and, and, and they are dying at a much faster rate than people who aren't poor. Poverty is, itself is really a bad thing. And we've known about this wealth gap for ages. It's been getting worse and worse, and we haven't done a thing about it. And um, the other thing is crowding. Um, you know, nursing homes, uh, one of the th reasons they think that Finland is doing so well with their nursing home population is because they're spread out and they're not crowded. They tend to use even family homes, both for mentally disturbed people and for um, elderly people. I'd heard that. Yeah. So these are public health issues that we could have done. But where is all the focus? All the focus is on hydroxychloroquine and remdesivir. Why? With marginal to no benefit and even potential harm, why, as you point out, all about where the profit's made. Nobody's making a profit in making nursing homes less dense. Nobody's making a profit in saying, let's uh, reduce the wealth gap. You know, it's, it's just tragic. Yeah, yeah. There's so much good stuff to talk about. Um, I, I do want to talk about conflict of interest, because I think it's such a big part of your book, and it's been woven through our conversation today. But you know, I, I'm the head of an independent watchdog, I think a lot about conflict of interest, I turn down funders, I turn on speaking engagements that could create, again, a real or perceived conflict of interest. And in your book, you lay out a comprehensive web of funding and influence that goes beyond consulting fees for doctors or industry-funded astroturf patient groups, right? Yeah. Um, which are the sorts of things that I've been thinking about, right? I've been thinking about, you know, those physicians that are getting these big consulting fees and the conflicts that that introduces, those breast cancer advocacy groups that are primarily funded by industry and really touting the party line about, you know, treatments and uh, those sorts of things. Uh -huh. But you go far deeper and talk about the crossover between private industry, medical research, academic research, medical journals. Um, talk to us about, you know, what you've uncovered in terms of just the pervasive and sweeping conflicts of interest in our, in our healthcare system right now. Right. Well, before I jump into that, I just want to mention that it, besides a conflict of interest in which one, you know, benefits by doing something, um, you know, where you actively choose something that's going to give you more money. There is another problem in medicine, and the, the, this is the quality initiatives where individual doctors and providers like me felt trapped because you would be measured on how many patients you sent to colonoscopy and how many mm -hmm. patients you made sure had, you know, this test done or that test done. So even if you felt like this is over treatment, over testing, you know, you're dinged if you don't do those things and can even be fired. And in fact, that uh, cardiologist I just mentioned earlier, Jigna Shaw, he talked about how um, they wanted procedures done, these ablation procedures, because they are big money makers for hospitals. And he'd say, no, this patient doesn't need this. This is a dangerous procedure, you know, and, and, and it shouldn't be done willy nilly. And he found himself really getting in trouble for that in terms of, you know, the demand that you've got to produce what they call RVUs. So um, there's that. But yes, back to your original question. So, um, you know, I talk about Bayh-Dole as one aspect of the problem. And, and this is the whole idea that, that, Private industry is always better than government. And, and, and that's just so wrong. You know, research that was done by independent researchers funded by NIH on the public dime in the early years did an enormous amount of good. 
there was were tremendous discoveries that have changed everybody's lives in terms of what we have available to us should we become really sick. So thank goodness for independent research. But the privateers said, no, 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 we can do it better. And it's best if you guys give us the money and we'll work with you. Well, the moneyed people lobbied Congress and the money all went in a big circle between politicians and pharma and device manufacturers. And indeed, they passed laws so that eventually, uh, same thing on universities for the military. So the military industrial complex, very similar uh, areas where you know, uh, military hardware, Boeing, whatever was being um, built, you know, their, their uh, politicians would lobby and, or they were lobbied. And um, they made this law by Dole, which said that if you make an invention, whether it's for a military hardware or for a drug company, if an academic at a university makes a discovery that we can use pharma or the military or whatever other industry, the oil industry, that's a big one, um, you can keep the patent. You as an individual researcher and your university will personally be enriched. Well, what does that do? You know, there was a reason for the academy. And the idea was that independent academy actually sought truth. But what if truth is what we were talking about before, is more based in public health than it is in medicine? And then you don't find that because that's not what's getting rewarded. And right now, virtually all research, you know, people say, I know some study that showed like, I don't know if it was 65%, 70% of academic university research is actually funded by industry now. But even the rest of the research that's often announced as independent and done by NIH or CDC is actually partnered with industry. And what does that do when it's partnered with industry? Well, I'll give you one example. There was a study that allegedly showed that high-dose steroids were great for spinal cord injuries. And that was a, announced as a big independent NIH study. The problem was it was partnered with industry. And when I filed for the data from that study, because some neurosurgeons contacted me and they wanted to know what the outcome of the actual data were, because what they had announced only was a subset. And basically, you know, that's wrong. When you do a study, you don't report a subset. A subset, as they say, is only good for generating a hypothesis, but then you have to test it. You can't just take part of your patients and report it. So these neurosurgeons were upset. They were saying, look, this treatment we think is killing people. We think it's killed thousands of the people we're treating. And we want to see the data. So they thought that I, as somebody who work, writes for the BMJ, could, could get the data. And I thought so, too. It was an NIH study. So I filed for the data. And the NIH said, we don't hold the data because they had partnered with industry. So I went to the researcher at Yale who did the study, who was funded by the, the company, and he refused to release the data. And what I found out was the Sunshine and Data Act is completely ignored because there's small print that means, and I have this in writing from the NIH, that despite numerous requests for data under the Sunshine and Data Act, no data have ever been released. Mm, that's appalling. And the final upshot is that 10 years after this was considered the standard of care, the... I can't remember the name of the National Academy of Neurosurgeons or whatever, did a literature review and they decided 
against this as a standard of care, saying it was dangerous, that there was no evidence that it gave any benefit, and there was good evidence that it did harm and killed people. So it stopped being a standard of care, but it took many, many years for that to happen and was obstructed by the fact that private industry had partnered with NIH. And that's what happens a lot of times with NIH. So many of those studies are, are partnered. Yeah. Yeah. So no one, so here we are as we're getting ready to wrap up here, no one is talking about the costs of new drugs and tests for COVID-19. You know, um, we have a capitalist health system that allows industry to set the costs of uh, health care, and the government is not allowed to negotiate cost for Medicare coverage. Um, but of course, healthcare is not like other fee for services. Um, it's not a commodity. And if cost is determined by what the market will bear, the sky is the limit because we're not going to put a cost on our lives. Yeah. So, you know, talk to us about what we can expect as these new, you know, tests and treatments are being promoted and, and where we have some power to push back? Well, people do have the power if we organize, and, and that's the key. Unfortunately, without that, the truth is, um, far from using this as a moment to create better equity, um, you know, I mean, I think anybody who has read uh, Naomi Klein's Shock Doctrine understands that moments like this are exactly when the profiteers move in and and make things even worse. I mean, they ha they feel that they have us by the throats. People want to live and they're scared. And you use that moment to actually increase, not decrease your prices. So I suspect that, you know, far, you know, remdesivir, which was funded by NIH, uh, or was it CDC? I think it was NIH. Um, but it was funded on the public dime. You know, the private company, Gilead, is who's going to set the price. And they're going to rake in a lot of money. Um, so I think that people are going to have to say, really, is that you said it, it's, it is a common good, and yet we're not treating it as a common good. And it's going to bite us all in the butt if we don't think that what's good for our neighbor is good for us. An infectious disease ought to convince us of that, if nothing else. You know, if altruism doesn't, our own self-interest ought to convince us that, that we need to treat our neighbors well. It's really true. It's really true. So we've talked about these incredible, deep, entrenched problems and the powerful forces and financial resources uh, behind so much of the decision making in our healthcare system. Um, as we turn to wrap up, where do we go from here? What are some of the lessons for your work that can help us address the systemic problems and the deep inequities that are driven by our current medical industrial complex? Well, I think, you know, if anything came out of our discussion today, it is that people may want to rethink the idea that that, that private companies are really the way to go. And, and that includes our healthcare system itself. You know, every other is people have heard over and over, every other wealthy nation has a national health care system. We're the only one that doesn't. And our outcomes are terrible. We're at the bottom of the list in terms of many outcomes. And it doesn't have to do with us smoking more or being more obese or even being more violent, which we are. But those are very, very tiny contributors. Um, the truth is, is that uh, our health care system is bad. And people with a national health care system, I mean, I just read something recently. I, I do write for the British Medical Journal, so I have a bias because I'm 
I'm very familiar with their system and what they say. And there's somebody wrote something recently saying, you know, the the national healthcare system there is the closest thing to a religion they have. I mean, people there do not want to give it up. And we have this myth that people in this country um, believe that we have the best medical system. Well, we're deeply unhappy with our medical system, and yet people in other countries are much more happy in Canada, in, uh, in England, in other countries, in Costa Rica. Um, they're much more happy with having a national health care system. So I think we need to think about that. Um, we do need to take away the profit incentives because, unfortunately, Medicare is based on profit incentives. And while I um, endorse the Medicare for all idea, we're going to have to change the payment model because it's been letting um, people get away with murder. And that includes something you mentioned earlier, which is that <laughs> we're not even allowed to negotiate prices with big pharma. Uh, it's crazy. Well, I have to tell you, Jeannie, that many people in the breast cancer community are not satisfied with the U.S. healthcare system. And for 30 years, since our founding in 1990, Breast Cancer Action has called out all these problems produced by our capitalist healthcare system and the consequence of regulatory capture, which is when businesses influence the FDA and other federal agencies. It's really the fox guarding the hen house, as we talked about earlier. And you've done a, a wonderful job of showing what happens and, you know, it really creates incredible problems for people who are trying to, uh, who are faced with some of these healthcare decisions. Uh, you've given us some food for thought about what we can individually do to probe and ask questions about devices, procedures, tests that we may be considering undertaking. At the same time, this is bigger than any one of us. Um, as you note, if you know the very specialists who work in these areas go ahead and implant those devices in their bodies, uh, only later to discover problems, how can we do better? And so this is a moment for us to really turn our attention to the larger systemic solutions. And I'm so grateful to you for sharing your research, sobering as it is, because you're giving us an opportunity right now as the whole world is tuned into these issues, alert to COVID-19 and the consequences of our public health policies and regulatory decisions. Yes, there's no question. We know that the profiteers are looking for new ways to take advantage of the current crisis, to expand their power and control. But the pandemic is a wake-up for many others, and it's an opportunity for us to come together, to galvanize and mobilize people, to fight for a more just healthcare system that truly puts our interests and the interest of public health before those of corporations. Thank you so much for joining me, Jeannie. It has been just an honor and a pleasure to have you in the conversation today. And I'll look forward to the next time we talk. Oh, it's such a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for listening to the Breast Cancer Action Podcast. All of our podcasts are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. Give us a five-star review and be sure to subscribe. We want to hear from you. Tell us your stories, share your questions. Let us know who you want to hear from and who we should invite as a guest on the show. You can share your ideas by emailing info at bcaction.org or reaching out on Facebook or Twitter. 
While you're there, sign up for the emails to get the latest on all the rest of Breast Cancer Action's work. And if you value what you heard today, please support our work by donating on our website, bcaction.org, because together we can do something besides worry.